Welcome back to Research and Review. In this episode, we discuss the replication cycle of HIV-1. We learn about why the process of single strand transfer is vital for the disassembly of the viral particle and how using a mathematical approach can help supplement the limitations of assays. Our guest today is a group leader at the Francis Crick Institute in London, researching the replication of retroviruses such as HIV. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kate Bishop. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us today. So uh, your specialism is in virology. So could you tell us a bit about how you uh, became interested in virology? Yeah, sure. So I did a um, biochemistry undergraduate degree, which is obviously quite broad. Um, but I think I always had a, an interest in, in viruses, um, even sort of before I started my degree, I think when I was doing biology as an A-level and sort of just looking up things in textbooks, if I came across some sort of thing on virology, I'd sort of stop and read it. <laughs> and it's always a good sign when you actually want to read things <laughs> that Absolutely. obviously shows you're kind of interested in them. Um, and then I was very lucky. I, I went to the University of Bath and they have a, their biochemistry course has um, placements integrated into the course. And so I got to go and um, do a couple of placements. I went to the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm and there I did neuroscience because I was also at the time, I was quite interested in neuroscience and this would have been in my second year of my degree. And what I realized is actually I was quite interested in how the brain worked, but neuroscience was so um, specific on one tiny bit of it that it wasn't really sort of the overall picture. Um, so perhaps I didn't actually want to do that. Um, I came back to Bath. I then went on my second placement and I went to um, San Francisco, which was great. Worked in a biotech company looking at potential drugs for diabetes, which was also something I thought was very interesting. But again, when I actually did the work, it was all kinase inhibitors and all these sort of kinase pathways, which I quite enjoyed, but wasn't quite kind of what I wanted to do. Um, so I think when I started thinking about what it was, I realized I, I think I wanted to cure something. I think that was where it kind of all started. And it seemed like there was a lot of opportunity um, in sort of virology for doing that. Um, and really when I decided what to do for my PhD, I, it was the choice between virology and cancer studies. And I plumped for virology um, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I think there were so many sort of aspects to it that I really liked that I just stayed in virology. <laughs> um, and one thing I really was fascinated by recently was the idea of paleovirology by being able to trace the lineages through these sequences that were shared in different species. And I just thought that was amazing. That's such an interesting and very clever way to kind of track lineages is through the existence of these um, parts of DNA that are conserved in animals from viruses. I just think it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so this is, an, is another thing that actually over the years we've kind of um, also appreciated that one of the things we have sort of um, looked at a lot is how the cell interacts with the virus. Mm -hmm. And actually, we've used viruses as tools um, to study the cell in a lot of ways, just because viruses are masters of molecular biology. You know, they go inside a cell and they really take it over. 
and hijack it to do whatever they want to do. But by studying how they manage to do this and how they interact, you can really understand about how the, the cell normally works. Um, and you can use this for a lot of other applications. So in fact, I mentioned earlier that um, I was interested in sort of cancer and virology. And one of the things is obviously viruses cause cancer. So that's mm -hmm. one kind of aspect of it. But in fact, some of the host defenses that um, protect against viruses actually also have roles in, in cancer as well. Wow. Um, and so some of the um, proteins that I've worked on over the years that we identified as targets for viral proteins, the virus wants to um, overcome these proteins and inhibit them. Um, in fact, these proteins also have roles in cancer and actually in, in two of the subjects that I sort of started working on that really came started from a virus aspect and really um, were identified from viruses are now fully taken over by their cancer field. Um, and there's lots of cancer biologists uh, working on these. So yes, it sort of, everything is linked. And I feel like viruses do a really good job of, of linking up different cellular processes as well. Absolutely. I, I never thought about it that way, um, how, you know, viruses can be sort of a starting point for lots of different types of research. That's, that's so fascinating. So you did your PhD in virology, and now you are a group leader at the Francis Crick Institute in London. Uh, some of our listeners might not be familiar with what it is, so could you give us um, uh, a summary of what the Crick is, and how did you find yourself there? Sure. So the Crick is a really huge um, biomedical research centre, and it was actually only recently formed, um, so it's still pretty new. Mm -hmm. I think we moved in in uh, 2016. Wow. Um, so we we're actually celebrating slightly late because of the whole COVID pandemic, uh, but we're celebrating our fifth anniversary this year. So we have um, extra events on this year actually uh, to celebrate because it was actually formed from the merger of two existing research institutes. So the National Institute for Medical Research which was out in North London um, on the, the Green Belt. And in fact, that's where I went uh, to set up my lab when I um, first got my lab. Uh, so I had a lovely view out, um, the view from the library, which is at the top of the building, looked out over fields and trees and cows and things. Um, and then there was also a cancer research um, institute called the London Research um, Institute. And they were looking for a new building. Uh, the NIMR was run by the MRC and they were changing their way of running things. So these two institutes got together and we built a brand new building, which is right opposite St Pancras Station, right next to the British Library. So right in the heart of London. Um, and it's a purpose built, amazing building. Actually, it has lots of um, engineering initiatives going on in it. Um, and it, as I said, it's really huge. It's about the same size as uh, I think it was 17 and a half football fields, I was told. So that's really how I got there, because um, I was in one of the founder institutes that sort of merged and, and moved together. Um, but yes, it's a brand new biomedical research institute that's hoping to um, be a, a centre of research excellent uh, sort of in the world, I guess. Fantastic. Um, I remember hearing... Um the director and Sir Paul Nurse talk about the approach of the the Crick was to be very interdisciplinary in the sense where there was not really departments, all the labs were just scattered around. Um, as a lab uh, group leader in the Crick, do you find that, you know, this, you know, sort of decentralised, you know, approach has really helped uh, your research? 
Yeah, so actually it sort of links to what we were just talking about. Um, so you're absolutely right. There are no divisions um, because I think Paul decided that the word division was just, uh, yeah, <laughs> divisive. So, <laughs> um, so we have what are called interest groups. Um, so these would sort of be akin to, to divisions in a university. So we have an um, infection interest group which is all the people working on infectious disease. So we have uh, malaria and TB and, and uh, viruses and things. Um, but the idea of interest groups is that you can belong to as many as you like. So I also belong to the structural biology interest group. I also belong to the immunology interest group. And it means that you, you find out about seminars. I mean, you could always go to, to seminars in different divisions anyway, but I think the idea is that you sort of more belong to them. Um, but what actually for me, one of the best things is there are people that work on DNA damage, um, literally just a few labs sort of up the, the corridor. Um, and what I find is I know virologists. I've worked in virology now for a, a while. Um, and if I want to talk to other virologists, I know where to find them. Um, but it's a little bit harder if you if you break into a new field. And as we were saying, virology covers so many different aspects and one of the proteins that we're working on in the lab, we've now realized has some roles in DNA damage. Mm. So it would be much harder for me to try and find experts in DNA damage if they were literally just a few labs <laughs> down the hall. So the nice thing about the Crick is there are experts in everything somewhere <laughs> and it's really easy to walk around and find them. Um, and it means that I get the knowledge sort of outside my field. And I think that's what's um, really important. And that's what's sort of tries and to bring collaborations together from people that perhaps wouldn't normally meet or would find it much harder to to go and, and meet each other. Absolutely, thank you very much for that. So moving on to the paper itself, uh, the paper is called uh, HIV-1 capsid and coating initiates after the first round transfer of reverse transcription and the link will be in the description. And speaking of collaboration, this paper was uh, made in collaboration with um, uh, Philip Murray, who's a mathematician at the University of Dundee, which is purely coincidental how I came across his paper. I didn't intend. I didn't intend. I assume that was very um, organised on your behalf. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so this is very interesting because I've not really seen a lot of research papers um, that include mathematical modelling. So how did this? How did this come about? Uh, what made you decide to go and get uh, mathematics involved? Well, I think it was just sort of trying to solve this problem, which um, has been a tricky problem to solve. <laughs> so we'll probably sort of talk a little bit more about why that's difficult in a minute. But um, but because we sort of got to a point where we we just couldn't really get any further with the techniques we had at the time. Uh, so we were trying to think about how we could push this a little bit more and get a little bit more information sort of about what we wanted. and we just sort of wondered whether we could somehow model it <laughs> using maths to predict things. Um, and somebody in the lab had a friend who um, I think it's, it's uh, her husband is uh, Philip. <laughs> uh, and so because we had a link to a mathematician, um, we got in contact and said, do you think this is a problem that you could do something about? Do we have the right kind of data because I think that that's where you need to have the right data to put into a model um, so we sort of explained 
what we'd done and what we'd got and and asked him whether he thought that this was a problem that could be <laughs> addressed with mathematics. Um, and he seemed really keen. Um, uh, I think it was something quite new for him as well. Um, so yeah, then we just basically sat down and started talking and talking it through. And obviously there was a lot of <laughs> discussion over time and it got refined. Um, and eventually we ended up with the model that we put in the paper. Fantastic. And so one thing that I find really um, interesting with the collaboration is that this collaboration is uh, in this paper is looking at a problem that has been known about for quite a long time. And that's looking you know, at HIV, um, which um, uh, which is still a massive, a massive problem. A lot, before we go into the paper, could you give us a quickly summarize sort of how HIV infects a cell and why the way it does it makes it so difficult to treat. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I guess that we, the first thing, obviously it's a um, HIV is a retrovirus, like all viruses, it has to replicate inside a cell. So, you know, I think most of the country now are, are semi-expert virologists um, <laughs> after the last couple of years. Uh, so all viruses have something on their surface which allows them to enter a, a cell. Uh, and just like the SARS coronavirus, um, HIV is an envelope virus. It has proteins. We don't call them spikes, but they're equivalent to the spike proteins that bind a receptor. This then allows the membrane of the virus to fuse with the membrane of the cell. And in the case of retroviruses, it releases this core into the, the cytoplasm of the cell. And in pictures, you often see HIV, it has this sort of conical shaped core, it's very distinctive. Not all retroviruses have that shaped core. Um, so HIV stands out, uh, you, can, you can see it quite clearly. Once that core gets into a cell, there's a few things that has to happen. It moves towards the nucleus. The, the genome of the virus is um, positive sense RNA, single-stranded RNA. So again, just like the SARS coronavirus. Um, and it has to, but in the case of retroviruses, it replicates quite differently to most other viruses. And it gets the term retro because it effectively goes backwards from the central dogma of RNA, uh, DNA to RNA to protein. Retroviruses start as RNA and they go backwards and make a double-stranded DNA copy of their genome. And the other critical thing about retroviruses is they then stick that double-stranded DNA copy of their genome into the host cell chromatin. And that makes a permanent record. And that's what you were talking about, paleo-virology. Um, Actually, once you've been infected with a retrovirus, that cell will be infected for life. It, that doesn't come out. And this is different to, to most other viruses. They don't integrate their genome. Once it's in there, it's treated like any other cellular gene, really. And it gets the cell to make its um, messenger RNA, make its proteins. These proteins then self-assemble and they bud through the membrane and release new viral particles. And so that's the sort of overall life cycle. But the critical thing of why we can't cure HIV is really because of this step of integration. So unless you kill every cell that's got a virus in it, you will have some uh, copy of that virus inside. And you can sort of think of it a little bit akin to cancer. If you have cancer treatment, if you don't get every cancer cell, then that can any that are left behind can still multiply and, and regrow the cancer. Um, and so we have fantastic drugs to block HIV replication. They work extremely well now, and, and it's you know not really uh, it's a chronic treatable infection now. But you're not cured because 
all the time you have those copies of those viruses inside you, if you take away the drugs, these viruses can just come back out um, and you get a brand new kind of peak of, of viremia. So you get a lot of virus in your blood. And so that's the major challenge for, for HIV is how to get rid of <laughs> this so-called reservoir of cells that contain HIV um, in order to be able to, to cure somebody. Absolutely. And the sort of the focus of this paper specifically is you're looking at um, how instead of you know the, the actual process of integration itself, it's more about the virus getting into the cell in the first place. Uh, and in the in the paper, um, you covered that uh, that the that the the shell, the conical shell, you talk about the capsid, um, which contains all of the, the proteins and the genetic material, um, breaks down. Um, and you mentioned in the paper that a really important uh, process within this is called first strand transfer. So could you uh, summarise what uh, first, trans first strand transfer is? Yes, so it's, it's slightly complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I could really do with a diagram. Um, but basically, when you have this reverse transcription, you start off with this single-stranded piece of RNA that's in the positive sense strand. So um, retroviruses contain an enzyme called reverse transcriptase. This is the enzyme um, that copies the RNA into DNA. But it, it has to do lots of jobs, actually. Um, so the first thing is to recognize a primer that's bound to the RNA, which in the case of retroviruses is a tRNA. It's bound right at the five prime end so sort of if you if you think about it kind of at the beginning of the genome and when it, it uses this primer to synthesize the first strand or the negative sense strand against that positive sense RNA um, because it's stuck right at the beginning and it's going sort of in the opposite direction is the way you sort of synthesize your DNA it only makes this very short product um, right at the beginning of the genome so then you end up with a, a bit of RNA and DNA single strand of DNA hybridized together. So the, AR, the reverse transcriptase enzyme, which we um, abbreviate to RT, also has an, an RNA's H function. And this is a very special function as well. <laughs> um, this specifically degrades RNA in an RNA-DNA hybrid. So what it'll do is you've, you've got your RNA genome, you've got this tiny bit of DNA stuck at the beginning of it. It'll degrade the RNA, which just leaves the DNA bit. <laughs> Um, that bit is then not bound to, to the rest of the RNA. So it is free to move. And in fact, what it does is move to the other end of the genome. And in fact, we think that there are actually two copies of the RNA genome in a virus. And we think that they might be sort of almost um, formed in circles. So in fact, although it goes to the other end, it might go on to the next strand of RNA. It's, again, I, I said it was a bit complicated. Um, but basically it then uses this, this little bit of DNA that it's made as a primer to prime the synthesis of the rest of that negative strand of, of DNA that copies the RNA. And so that is the first strand transfer is when you go from moving that bit at, at the beginning of the genome right to the end of the genome to be able to then copy that first strand. And then you have a, a similar sort of process that you, you have this RNA's H function, which will degrade the RNA template and just leave you with this single strand of DNA. And there is a little bit of RNA that's a bit more resistant to RNA's H than the rest of it. So you sort of end up with this tiny little bit of RNA stuck on this now long strand of DNA. 
and that acts as the primer for the second strand. But again, this me just because of the way that you um, you always polymerize your DNA. This is now stuck at the three prime end. This is this is at the bottom end of the of the genome. So again, it makes this little strand of DNA, and then you end up with that bit. Then re moves to the beginning of of the strand of DNA, and then it will um, synthesize the other strand of DNA to give you a double stranded. Um, hybrid of, uh, of proper DNA. So there's that's the second strand transfer um, where it moves. And it basically, uh, a lot of people took a lot of time in vitro to work out how this happens because it's not really intuitive. Um, mm -hmm. It wouldn't be the way you'd design it, I don't think, if this is what you wanted. <laughs> so I don't know how this has kind of completely come about this complicated process. But um, the first strand transfer is critical to make this negative sense copy of the RNA genome, basically. Absolutely. So is one of the reason is it one of the reasons why um, HIV is able to mutate is is the sort of the way it replicates the the, the way it reversed transcription is that the main source of this mutation is just through the process and does the first strand transfer kind of help with that? So, um, so you have two main ways, I guess, of making mutations. And the most common is because, I think because our um, reverse transcriptase has to do so many things, it's got to polymerize DNA using an RNA template. It's then got to polymerize DNA using a DNA template, and it's got to have this RNA's H function to degrade RNA. Um, it's quite what we call a promiscuous enzyme. And it, it, isn't, it doesn't have any proofreading, um, which all of your DNA synthesis enzymes in, in, you know, in a human, we have this very good proofreading to check we're not making any errors when we copy ourselves. Well, the virus doesn't have any of that. So I think it will take in any base. And so basically you can think about it sort of doing multitasking um, and it just incorporates the wrong base sometimes. And this is, it doesn't bother to check whether it's right or not. It's just like, fine, we'll have that one. And the, the, the mechanism for all viruses is we make so many virus particles. We don't care if a few of them have got a few mutations and the majority of them will be detrimental or have no effect. And occasionally you get one that makes it replicate better. And then just in terms of numbers, that one will propagate quicker, better, more, and will start to sort of outgrow the other ones. You can also get recombination and the fact that retroviruses have these two copies, which is probably to help it to do the strand transfer, means that you actually have then two copies which can recombine with each other. So if they're not identical, you can also um, introduce mutations that way. So there is a recombination as well as this introducing um, the wrong base. But yes, the process of reverse transcription is where most of the errors come from, um, which gives you potentially gives rise to um, drug resistant mutations and things like that. So it's, it's a very critical step in, in the replication. Absolutely. So moving on to uh, one, of the, one of the results um, that uh, blocking the RNAs H, as you said, part of the reverse transcriptase activity inhibits uncoating. Uh, what, um, so what tests did you do to find this out? And did you go into looking at RNAs H expecting to find anything? So what we knew when we started was if you if you stopped reverse transcription altogether, you seem to block uncoating. And I should say that even now, and you know, this paper's is a little old now, but <laughs> in the fast moving field that is HIV. Uh, but even now, 
the even the term uncoating isn't particularly well defined. We don't really know what we mean when we say uncoating. Um, so what we know is that the DNA that you make has to get access to the, the host cell chromatin. And presumably it can't do that if it's in, encased in the shell. So the shell has to somehow open, break down. But we so we call it uncoating, but we don't know whether it's like a box opening and the genome comes out or whether the whole thing just dissolves. Um, so we because we don't really know what it is, we don't really have a really good assay for measuring it. Um, and so what we had to do in the paper was do multiple different assays that all had limitations. There were caveats to everything as to, well, this might not be measuring uncoating. This is effectively measuring, you know, a very specific thing that we are approximating to uncoating. But by using multiple different assays and different ways to measure uncoating, what we were trying to do was to limit the limitations of each one um, and say, well, if we see the same thing using four or five different approaches, then it probably is, is what we think. <laughs> um, and so, yes, we had to, to use surrogate assays, I think, for, for measuring this uncoating process. Um, and they all told us that if you block reverse transcription completely, you don't get this uncoating process. And so what we were trying to do was, was inhibit the reverse transcription process at different points to see whether um, any one particular point would block uncoating. And what we found was you could make this first little bit of, of DNA and that, that still blocked uncoating. So that didn't trigger uncoating. So it had to be after that. And the RNA's H function was quite easy to inhibit in the enzyme. So it was a nice place to start to say, well, what happens when we inhibit this particular function? And we kind of had a very good idea then of what we were stopping, where in the reverse transcription process we were blocking. And so that then allowed us to, to talk about that particular stage. Absolutely. Uh, and your other results um, included sort of when you... you uh, you stated that the uncoating is not the is not dependent on the late products of reverse transcription. Uh, so for when you when you looked at this, was this was this sort of a uh, moment where it sort of clicked that the uncoating was uh, directed um, by the RNA's H activity, or was at this point you were kind of, you were a bit more uncertain about what it could be. Yeah, I think we were we weren't sure what to expect. We, it could have been that as soon as you started reverse transcribing, the virus kind of went right. I'm I'm in the cell now. I'm obviously starting reverse transcribing. It's all going to be good. I'll uncoat. Um, and I think we thought, well, that seems a bit premature, but <laughs> it might happen. Um, I think actually now in the intervening years, I think people are sort of saying perhaps actually it is happening a bit later. And we've also, I was quite careful when I gave you the, uh, the overview of, of infection because uh, in all the textbooks that you will read, it will say that reverse transcription happens in the cytoplasm. That's everywhere. Uh, for the last 20 years, that's what people have been saying. But for the last year or two, um, people have actually done some other experiments and suggested that perhaps it actually happens in the nucleus. Um, and there are huge ramifications of that happening. Um, so our data would still fit with all of that because um, we didn't specify a, loca uh, 
localization of where this was happening. We were sort of doing it on timing. And actually, it does still fit with potentially uncoating happening in the nucleus and reverse transcription finishing in the nucleus. I think um, it may sound weird that we don't know where it happens. <laughs> um, that's actually because when you work with these viruses in the lab, you often put into cells uh, a sort of population of viruses. So you just add some viruses to cells and they go in. But what happens is that sometimes you get multiple viruses going in, or sometimes you get viruses going in that are a bit defective. Um, and you have your assays to measure sort of how well they infected, but those assays usually um, use a marker of expression. And that's quite different to then looking, say, down a microscope at something. So actually what we find is that sometimes you have so many to look at and you're not sure which are the ones that are actually going to go on and be the proper productive infection. And so that's why it's been very difficult, because it may be that nine out of 10 of your viruses are dead in some way and they were never going to give you an infection. But if you look down a microscope and you see nine out of 10 of your viruses doing the same thing, you would probably think that's what should be happening. You don't look for the one in 10 that's doing something different because you're going, that's probably the weird one. So it's very difficult to, to link kind of uh, biochemical and microscopy results with infection. And so that's been a major challenge over the years, which has sort of led to all of this uh, complication um, and confusion. Um, and so now we're actually getting better microscopy techniques and we're, we're getting more precise techniques in other ways. We're starting to sort of challenge these, these dogmas, really, um, which is why you still need to do more research, because actually what's probably written in the textbooks isn't quite right. But it was what we knew at the time. Um, and so now we've developed better methods. We can actually find out new things. <laughs> um, and so. So I think when we sort of saw that you didn't need to complete reverse transcription, all we were measuring really was the difference between a, a sort of longer and shorter uh, thing to reverse transcribe. And they didn't give us much sort of different results. But it is possible that there wasn't a big enough difference between the two things we were looking at to show us um, a sort of really big effect um, on uncoating. So I think that... Um, I would be hesitant to say that you didn't need to complete uncoating at all, or sorry, reverse prescription at all. But what we saw was that it wasn't the sort of major trigger for, for this process that we were measuring. Absolutely. First place. Absolutely. Yeah. That, like, yeah, that it's, it's absolutely fascinating that those, um, those techniques have been developed, but obviously it's, it's purely about the interpretation because like you said, like if, if the, you know, coming with the wrong assumption, um, it, it could mean that the, the whole, everything that that knowledge is built off of could just be completely false, um, which is absolutely amazing. And instead, I know, and instead of uh, being able to sort of see um, the uh, uncoating process, the, as you said before, there was mathematical modeling involved. So could you tell us a bit about at what point did you decide to get the modeling involved? And uh, do you think this is a good strategy in the place of, you know, as you were saying, more um, advanced microscopy? Yeah, so um, I guess that what we realized is we could make mutations to stop reverse transcription at very specific points, but we couldn't do anything about the bits in between because um, 
generally the the sort of ways that you can inhibit something inhibits one way of doing it. We're lucky with reverse transcriptase in a way that we can block different aspects of it um, because it has these, it's multifunctional, it has these different aspects. Um, so we can sort of break it down a little bit more. But it, the challenge was that um, we could only sort of get a few points, if you like, in, in the data. And there was big gaps in between. So what we were trying to do was to use some sort of more kinetic experiments that we couldn't, we could just measure what was happening. We couldn't really intervene with it. Um, and then use those kinetic measurements to put into a model so that we could then actually sort of make some predictions using some of our other studies on, on the very specific times, which were sort of in between these blunt points that we could inhibit. So, so I think that we realized early on that we could only do so many things with our experimental approach. And before you do it, you don't know whether, you know, for example, if we'd found that uncoating happened immediately that you started reverse transcription, then we could probably measure that point and then we'd have been done. Um, but because we found it was sort of between the beginning and the end, we needed to, to be able to have a technique to look in the middle. And so that then meant we, we looked to the mathematical modeling to sort of help solve that problem. Um, so for us, it was a way of sort of um, linking the dots uh, and, and making a sort of more continuous um, process. Um, but actually there's a very recent paper that came out uh, just about um, a couple of weeks ago <laughs> um, from some groups in the States. Uh, and they were also been looking at uncoating and they've actually set up a, a mathematical model themselves. In fact, I think the lead authors on the paper were mathematicians. Um, and this was to predict how the this capsid shell ruptured, so how it opened. And they use this very advanced technique of cryo-EM. Um, so this is electron microscopy, but done in ice. So you can um, freeze your, your, your sort of uh, study material um, and you can get a sort of more natural, if you like, <laughs> look at... Um, what's happening and you don't use stains so you you just look directly in these sort of frozen sheared samples and they made very advanced measurements using these techniques to make a mathematical model to look at, at um, the sort of pressure on the core from reverse transcription so they did something kind of similar that they let reverse transcription proceed um, in vitro this is now and then they imaged using the um, these different like particles at different times and um, in slightly different conditions. And then they just measured them all. <laughs> and they used a mathematical model to sort of predict the stress that the capsid was under and where it would break um, to sort of break apart. So people are still actually using mathematical models um, to help uh, study this process, actually. I think we were the first ones to do it. But, <laughs> but there are lots of people now sort of seeing well, we've got lots of data and we, but there's, it's not very black and white. And I think that's when you maybe use these models when it's not very obvious. It's not this or this, it's sort of a combination. And this sort of goes back to the fact that not all the particles are doing exactly the same thing. So you have to then sort of use a lot of particles and do some averaging and, and decide which ones are the ones that are you know, doing the most similar thing and if there is any patterns between them. And I think that's where the models come in is when they can recognize these patterns that perhaps you can't really detect just by looking at, at the data, like just looking at images, you would never be able to sort of identify it. But by measuring all these 
intricate sort of spacing and things, um, the computer power will be able to sort of put it together and see patterns that are more subtle um, than you would be able to see. But yeah, I mean, I think as virologists, we're maybe more used to trying a multitude of different experiments um, and, you know, Going coming circular back to what you said at the beginning, this is definitely something that's sort of kept me interested in virology is that you don't just do one technique, you don't just follow one sort of pathway. Uh, it takes you all over the place. And, you know, we've sort of got into multiple different fields, if you like, just following our virus. And so we're trying to combine as many different aspects of it as possible to come at it from as many different approaches. And I think mathematical modeling has its place in, in that in coming in um, as another approach. I don't think it will ever take over from <laughs> experimental work. You still need to do those experiments to put it into the model. Um, but it, it's another tool that you can use and it may be able to answer or to give you some hypotheses for things that would otherwise be difficult. Um, and particularly when you're dealing with just sheer numbers of things, um, then I think it, it's quite a powerful kind of tool. Then nothing is perfect, um, as you said. Um, so the more approaches you can take, then hopefully you'll sort of average out all the imperfections and come up with something that's approaching the truth. Absolutely. Well, that's a fantastic note to leave off of. Um, thank you very much for uh, talking us through your paper. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.